0: The Lord has gone up with a shout. The Lord, with the sound of the trumpet, sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to his name, sing praises. My dear friends, celebrating with you the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, which prefigures our own. It was 1861, America was shocked the south but certainly the north by the firing on Fort Sumter in April. Hastily, President Lincoln, the brand new president, just been inaugurated a matter of weeks before, hustles to assemble a much bigger army than the puny little standing army that the federal government had under its control. And one of the first things they did was cross the Potomac River to make sure they were controlling the heights on the Virginia side And of course, the Southerners viewed that as an unconscionable invasion. In fact, if you are from the South, you don't refer to the Civil War. What do Southerners call the conflict from 1861 to 65? The War of the Northern Aggression. And they view that invasion of, they view that seizing of the heights of Alexandria as an, an invasion, not just Federals securing the capital. And slowly, this ragtag Union army started moving southward a little bit, knowing that a battle was coming and they were green and not ready and their commander was not real excited about going into battle and President Lincoln urged him, you must move now. They are green and disorganized also. They're just as green as you. Don't wait. Move. That July, as the Union Army was preparing to advance farther south and engage the Confederates, a battle that was going to take place along a little creek named after a farm animal, named after a bull. They called it Bull Creek, although in the the parlance of that age, they called Creeks Runs. So it got to be known as the Battle of Bull Run. And it was an utter disaster for the Union Army and what they had assumed was going to be just rolling up the rebels turned into a, a, not only a defeat, but they skedaddled too. And everybody, broken pieces of the army, went fleeing back to Washington as fast as their legs and their horses and wagons could carry them. They had, the battle had, had an audience, had a gallery. People from Washington, the, gent, the gentry, drove their carriages out to watch it. They thought this would be great fun to watch us drive those Rebs back to Richmond. In fact, it went the reverse. Now as that battle was coming, there was an officer from the second Rhode Island, his name was Sullivan Ballou and he wrote a letter to his wife on July 14th and if the document is to be believed, he had a scary, eerie premonition that this battle was not going to go well. Many of the Union soldiers thought they were just going to roll over the Rebs. But Sullivan Ballou perhaps knew a little bit better and he wrote his wife a long letter of what to think in the event of his death. And here's the middle paragraph of it. But oh Sarah, if the dead can come back to this earth and flit unseen around those they loved, I shall always be near you in the garish day and the darkest night amidst your happiest scenes and gloomiest hours always, always. And if the soft breeze fans your cheek, it shall be my breath or the cool air cools your throbbing temples, it shall be my spirit passing by. Did you feel a little tear coming to your eye? Pretty sweet words. Unbelievably poetic. In fact, the whole letter is like a a poem about uh, what to do about impending death, how to think about death. But my point in bringing this up is he promised his wife, I will be with you always. And that's claptrap, of course. That is, it's sweet and it's romantic but it's nonsense nonetheless. When we die, we are gone from the earth. But somebody who said that, that I will be with you always, was not making it up and it was not romantic nonsense. Jesus told his disciples that ascension is not abandonment. In fact, it is a powerfully important part of God's plan for the salvation of the world and the bringing of the gospel to everyone, every living creature. It was not retreat either, it was advance. And it was not romantic nonsense, it was real. When Jesus told his disciples, I will be with you always, he meant it. And I want to celebrate that with you today because it may just seem that you're disappointed by the ascension, that perhaps you think your life would be a whole lot better if you could just have a look at Jesus and watch him in action. You know how weak your faith is, how seldom you think about God and have him as your frame of daily reference. How often you exert your will, like the choir was just singing a few minutes ago, instead of, um, we're, we're so busy usually doing what we want, instead of saying before we act, Lord, what, what, what would you want? And then paying attention sufficiently to his word, the Bible, so that we know what his will is, instead of just guessing Knowing the will of God is more than just wearing a little bracelet that says WWJD. What would Jesus do? You often have no idea what Jesus would do. Even the people who watched him from day to day, Jesus' disciples, 50% of the time had no idea what Jesus was going to do. A much better rubber thing to wear around your wrist is look what Jesus has done. And what did Jesus say? Here's what he said to you. He is the conqueror of death which he shares with all who believe in him. He's ascending to heaven which is not abandonment nor retreat but advance and he's coming back to take us to live with him where he lives which will then be fused with earth. Heaven, we will finally have heaven on earth. That's all coming. This is forward motion. This is not going backwards. And the ascension of Christ is an integral part of God's wonderful plan. I'd like to ponder with you a very famous paragraph in the Bible uh, but I'm not going to comment a lot on the reason it's so famous. The end of the Gospel of Matthew, its last paragraph, is rolled out very, very often in Christian churches because it is the crispest articulation probably anywhere in scripture of the mission of the church, the outreach and evangelization command. We call it the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. That is our work as individual Christians and as the church. But I'm not really going to talk so much about that today. What, what went on around it, we usually kind of to give the light touch or kind of ignore, to concentrate on the mission command. And I'm going to turn that insight out with you over the next few minutes, because I'd like to look at what's around it, and we'll talk about the mission command another day. Here's what happened. At the end of Matthew, we hear just a tiny little nugget of what Jesus did with his 40 days. Jesus was on earth for 40 days after rising from the dead and then he ascended. 40 days, 40 days, 40 days. Huh. Have you noticed how often the number 40 pops up in Scripture? Has that ever, have you ever tripped over that? Isn't that an odd thing? What's with 40? Uh, The Bible doesn't say this, so I'm going to offer you my conclusion because that's the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night, my head kind of running. Why? What's the deal with 40? Well, it's roughly a month longer than a lunar cycle and longer than any of our, our, um, our actual months, the longest of which is 31. But it's, it's sort of like a month. It's a nice, round, even number. And here's the thing. God picks the number 40 when he's going to do something big and really important for the advance of his saving plans. And he wants you to know that it's not coincidence. That's what I think is behind the 40. So is it just coincidence that the first three kings of Israel each had reigns of 40 years? Is it a coincidence that when God laid a punishment down on the people of Israel for their miserable rebellion and lack of obedience, to his will. That he decreed that they should wander in the wilderness before entering into the promised land and that the adult generation that wanted to go back into slavery weren't going to go back into Egypt but they were going to uh, spend their time in the desert because they did not want to enter the land of Canaan. How many years? Well, 40. I counted uh, by my unofficial count, 27 or 28 times in scripture when God picked 40 to show a very important span of time. And this is one of them. Jesus had stuff to do before his ascension and we are given little peeks at that. Only little scraps and peaks. I shouldn't say scraps. Scraps are like leftovers. These are precious nuggets. That's a better word. They're precious little nuggets and this is one of them. Jesus had things to do primarily to let chosen individuals see him alive in order to confirm and strengthen their testimony that the resurrection is real and that life has triumphed over death. Forgiveness has triumphed over guilt and condemnation. Heaven has triumphed over hell. Christ has triumphed over Satan. The hero has crushed the head of the serpent and the father has approved and accepted his work. This is a big deal and Jesus let chosen individuals see him alive to give some backbone energy and courage to their testimony. A second thing he did, all, you know, all the, the resurrection happened Outside of which city? Give you a hint. It starts with a J. Jerusalem. Correct. That's down in Judea. He's going to ascend. Where's the place of the ascension that we celebrate today? The, I heard somebody say it. The Mount of Cherries. No, wrong fruit. Mount of Help me! Play with me! Come on! <laughs> the Mount of Olives. Also in Judea. So what's he doing in Galilee? It's a day or two's walk. It's a hard walk because it's really mountainous. If you've ever been in the land of Israel or if you just looked at the pictures like me, it's really hilly. That's a hike. Now I suppose he now, by, because he's risen and glorified, he could maybe use speed dial or speed walk and he could have blinged himself up there, show enough. But he said, I want, his, I want, I want to meet you. He said, now why would he say to the disciples, I want to meet you up in Galilee? That is just a a puzzler, a head scratcher. I'm not really sure. I've got some guesses. Guess number one is Jesus had some people who lived in Galilee that he needed to see. That was, after all, the main focus of his three year ministry. Two thirds of it was spent in Galilee. There might have been people up there who needed to see him alive. And second, he's going to reenact his stunt with the fish, his fish gig. You know what I mean by the fish stunt? Where, where he talks to a bunch of professional fishermen and it's like a bad ethnic joke. You're throwing your nets on the wrong side of the boat, alright? That, isn't that crazy? And after a frustrating zero of a fishing night, all of a sudden they haul in so many the nets are going to break. He did that once. And now he's going to do it again. And he used that as a visual picture of commissioning them for their work. He recommissioned the disciples. He gave these people their jobs back. In fact, with promotions, they deserved neither. But he was going to take the risk that they would grow into their job. And he wanted to do that on the Sea of Galilee. So that's what they might have been doing up here. Now he he told the disciples to meet him on a certain mountain without knowing which one. Is this the mountain perhaps where he underwent his transfiguration? That would certainly be appropriate, wouldn't it? The resurrected Lord is now going to re-meet them where he once showed them his glory. Was this possibly the mount where he gave his famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount? Today, there's a beautiful chapel called the Church of the Beatitudes which is built on the the place where people guess his sermon on the mount was delivered. Or did he go up to the granddaddy of them all, the one that is actually snow-capped? Believe it or not, this desert land has a mountain so tall you can have a ski resort on it. You think I'm making this up? Raise your hand if you think I'm lying about the Israelis having a ski resort in their desert. Go ahead, call me out. Who thinks I'm making this up? Okay, if you brought your smartphone, you can fact check me but you're going to lose. Good thing we're not betting. Did they go up to Mount Hermon, the big daddy, at the far north end of the land of Israel? Who knows? What is important is that Jesus got into a very important huddle and during this precious 40 days, explained some things that his disciples needed to process. And as usual, they were way behind and needed some help in figuring out what was going on. When they saw him, they worshiped him. Good. But some doubted. Bad. I'll bet most of you think it would be so much easier to believe in Christ. You wouldn't have struggles with your doubts if you could at least see Jesus face to face watch him do a few miracles and then drink in a couple of his teaching sessions, wouldn't you? Don't you think that? Aren't you kind of embarrassed sometimes at the confusion in your brain and the weakness of your faith? Think of all the times your Christian resolve has crumpled and the devil has made a monkey out of you. Think of all the times that simple, plain truths in Scripture seem so hard for you to believe. Think of all the times when instead of being joyful and proud of your Christian faith. You wilted like Peter in front of that girl who was guarding the gate. Think of all the times you wish you had a stronger faith. Wouldn't you think if you could be so much stronger if you could just have been with Jesus in person? I'm here to tell you, don't hold your breath because I don't think any of your issues would go away. Here are people who are looking at the dead and risen Christ, serene now and about to ascend to be crowned king of the universe. He's about to fill all things. They're looking right at him. They're worshiping him, but some doubted. Isn't that I'm embarrassed for them. I'm also embarrassed for myself because I fear that if I had been there with them, I might have been one of those dopes. Because I have plenty of issues of my own where there's not been, there's been too much me in my life and not enough Jesus. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I now reign supreme. Isn't this a beautiful statement? Remember three years ago when his ministry began? Who promised to give him all authority in heaven and on earth? See that picture of Jesus getting baptized? What's the very next story in scripture after his baptism? His temptation in the wilderness. Who said, I will give you all authority over heaven and earth? The devil. He lied, of course, through his teeth. Jesus would not have had lordship. He would have been Satan's slave. But he did it the right way, the hard way. And now, from his father, He is named Lord of the universe. That's a big deal. Celebrate that in this 40-day transition. You and I are living in the 40 days. Next Sunday will be Pentecost and we will move on to concentrate on the gift of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, go and now comes the Great Commission. You know this pretty well. Uh, We're going to sing about it as the service ends today. Make disciples. That's your job. And do it, I'm going to give you two powerful tools. Baptize them in the name of the Trinity and teach them. Baptize and teach. And all I'm going to say about that is this is how discipling gets done. These are the power sources to transform a heathen into a believer, a child of Satan into a child of God, a fool into a wise man or a wise woman. Somebody useless to God and somebody useful to God. Somebody saying no to God and somebody saying yes to God. How does this happen? Baptize and teach. Baptize and teach. And in spite of a lot of attacks, I am in this particular regard very proud and happy to be given the gift of having the Lutheran point of view, to believe in the power and urgency of both the inner and Scripture and the power of baptism. To touch a human being's body with the gospel, both because they're powered up by the Word of God. Both the Bible and baptism, the two killer bees as Satan thinks of them, are powered by the Word. Now, I'd like to finish up with that last verse. We sort of glide over it when we're into looking at our mission statement but this last verse, it's a Sullivan Balu moment. Surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Was that happy talk like Sullivan Ballou's letter? Is this just sweet poetry? Are they going to have Jesus in their life just in their memories? Sullivan Ballou was nothing more to his wife and his two little boys than a memory. They had a couple photographs of him and they kept his letters. In fact, there's a museum in Rhode Island, a military museum in Rhode Island has Sullivan Ballou's, all of his letters to his wife, which she saved. Got some photographs of the family but that's all she's got because Sullivan Ballou in no way was back on the earth but Jesus is. He said he is and I want to celebrate that with you today. How is Jesus still with us in a way that Sullivan Ballou is not? Number one, by sending his Holy Spirit, you see Jesus. Just as Jesus said, when you see me, my dear disciples, you are seeing the Father because the Trinity is a tight concept. If you connect with one, you've connected with all three. Secondly, Jesus fills the universe, Ephesians chapter 4. You heard a part of that magnificent essay on the nature of Christ as our scripture reading for today. Three chapters later, it says that Christ fills the universe. The universe. He is not only here in our sanctuary, he is everywhere. Third, his word brings his presence. When you hear and believe the word, you are seeing Christ. When you receive the Lord's Supper, you are bonded with Christ. You become part of him and he becomes part of you. He is really present in the supper and he's involved in your life. It's his guarantee. I see what's going on in your life and I care about what's going on in your life. And I act, I show up, I am engaged. A couple of weeks ago, I talked to you about the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. That Psalm, in six beautiful verses, conveys to you the powerful concept that blows you away that Jesus Christ is engaged in your life. He's not just looking at you, crawling around, struggling, suffering, taking punches, under attack, uh, getting weary and feeling yourself getting hopeless. No, 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 no. He's engaged in your life. And here's what he promises, not just by saying, I'll be with you always, not just to watch you, but he does for you what good shepherds do for their sheep. He provides guidance to help you think, and to do battle, to to see what's going on, to become more aware of Satan's attacks, but to be strong in the gifts he has given you, the promise of the forgiveness of your sins, the promise that you have infinite value to him. Though you have sinned, he doesn't hate you. He's not disgusted with you. He loves you still. His love is unconditional and his gospel love is greater than judgment and anger. How do you know that? The word tells that to you. He says he's sending his angels to protect you in all your ways. That's what what our loving Savior does for us. That's that's how he shows up and helps us. We can't even see all the disasters that didn't happen to us. It's very hard to notice in negative. I don't, I don't notice the housework my wife has done a lot of the times because she has made problems disappear. So I don't see the problems and I don't think to say thank you because I don't see there's, there, the problem has disappeared. And so you and I have so much to be grateful for of disasters that never happened because our Savior said, no, not today. Not on her, not on him. And finally, our Lord Jesus who shows up, gives us a pathway, a bright pathway. Says, hang on, just listen for my voice and take one step at a time and I will always put just enough light on your path so that you'll know what you're doing today. I guarantee to bring you the resources you need for today, aka Daily Bread, tomorrow, I'll give you tomorrow's bread. I won't give you tomorrow's bread today, but I will give you enough for today. And so you and I do not have to fear because ascension is not abandonment. He's alive and he's here. Let that bring you joy and inspire you to joyful service and mission in his name.